Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So first of all, I would like to ask you if you can introduce yourself or define who you are for the audience we be first time listening to you. Okay, I'm Dr. Jennifer Mather, a professor in the Department of Psychology, University of Lethbridge, which is in Southern Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. Fascinated with octopuses probably since Mm, not necessarily as a child. I was fascinated by marine animals as a child, but mm. I started fixing on octopuses as the animals I really wanted to know about in my late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. I knew when I was a kid that I wanted to study sea animals. Mm. Uh, and I still am 60 years later. Very wonderful. So first of all, uh, I just want to thank you for being here because I think everyone almost say that film, my octopus teacher, is very fascinating. And we never feel that kind of connection with wild animals like octopus. And even in soft robotics field, we have an inspiration for octopus, but still, we don't understand how these creatures are intelligent. But maybe first to ask you, when you receive the story, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? Or I don't know how you receive the story of the, of the film and your experience, huge experience you have in understanding octopus. What kind of thoughts do you have on the mind when you read the story? Well, I should probably tell you my connection to the film. It's not a huge connection. I didn't know much about it before, very late in the production. I had been acting as an advisor to the BBC because they had a sequence of Craig Foster's on one of the Blue Planet series. And the Mm -hmm. BBC is very, very picky about making sure that things are scientifically correct. So they connect with an authority about any of their footages. And so I worked with them. And after we'd made sure that it was okay, the well, I, don't, I don't think it was a producer, but whoever it was said, by the way, um, the filmmaker would like to get in touch with you. Is that okay? And I said, sure. So she gave me, he gave him my email address. And I guess that he had thought about this through the editing of the BBC piece because he said, well, we're making this film and we'd like to make sure we have it scientifically accurate and can we consult with you? And I said, sure. And he said, how would you like to come to South Africa and work on it with me? And I said, oh yes, because I've never been to South Africa and it was very exciting to go. So I spent 10 days there. And by that time they had the preliminary film and they really did just want to make sure that it was scientifically accurate and appropriate. And Mm -hmm. Then I came home and I got on with my work. And the next thing I know, a, a friend of mine who's in Los Angeles, no, it wasn't, it was Craig, I think, who said that there's a film festival on documentaries called the Jackson Wild, which is apparently the Oscar for wildlife documentaries. And they had been nominated for six different categories, including best picture. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. And I'm really sad that we had COVID because I probably would have been able to just go down to Colorado and be there when they won the Jackson Wild. Mm -hmm. 
And it was exciting to see because he sent me, of course, an early sample, which wiped after two weeks, so I didn't get to keep it. And it never occurred to me that they have Oscars for documentaries. I just didn't think about it. And then a friend of mine in LA said that my octopus teacher had been nominated for an Oscar. And I said, ooh, that's nice. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. But I'm just ask you, Jennifer, what kind of your journey in understanding octopus may be very, very peculiar for you. You didn't understand this behavior or something is still in the community for you understanding octopus, still not misunderstood, or maybe you don't understand how it happened. What kind of maybe question or things you still think is not really answered about octopus? Oh, well, I'm presently exploring the idea that octopuses have consciousness. Mm. And that is a big leap. And one of the reasons it's a big leap is to try to figure out what consciousness is in the first place, and then to figure out how consciousness would actually apply to an animal that's totally unrelated to us, that isn't social, that we really don't understand. And I think one of the things that's the simplest thing to say about consciousness is that there's somebody in there who thinks and plans and evaluates and evaluates itself that this is kind of the core of what we would call consciousness but i'm quite sure that if octopuses do have consciousness it's not the same consciousness we have okay yeah so can you tell maybe before that because i think even for us as human, we don't have a specific definition of what consciousness is. And if you can compare as far as you understand about what consciousness for octopus looks like, because in the movie, it was fascinating how they have this kind of feeling and playing. We don't know that they can play with fish. We didn't know that. And this connection, and it's weird. Well, one of the things that I understood as I came to watch and study the octopus is that they are very, 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 curious okay and and i have actually said that i they're solitary this is important they do recognize other members of the species and males and females of the same sex all their life and males have to go find females and persuade them to let them mate with them this is kind of the way it works but they they don't like other octopuses you know we like people we love people we are a social species, but octopuses aren't really a social species, but they're very, very exploratory. Um, if you put, somebody once said that if you put a floating thermometer in a tank with an octopus, it'll be 10 minutes before the octopus has taken it apart. And because they have a muscular hydrostat movement system and not skeletons, their body's very compressible. So it's very, that are also very strong. So it's very easy for them to get into and out of absolutely anything. And one of the things that people worry about when they keep octopuses is how to stop the octopus from escaping its home, its tank, ending up dead on the floor, or ending up back in the ocean. And, and for me, this, what's going on out there is connected to some sense with a sense of self, a consciousness because an octopus, it seems when an octopus gets into an interesting situation that it doesn't do something about it immediately. 
it tries to figure out what's going on with the situation, tries to get more information, and then it does something about it. And for me, that's kind of the core about having somebody in the middle thinking. Mm. Very fascinating. So if you compare it to evolution, how you can compare the consciousness of the octopus in that case? Is it in, it's ranked as a human or different? What kind of metrics, if you can elaborate more about how we can compare the consciousness of octopus? Well, I don't think we can. I mean, mm. that's one of the problems. This is one of the things that makes scientists interested in octopuses because they have evolved this high intelligence. They have evolved this drive to explore. They have evolved this curiosity and they play also as well. But they've clearly evolved it completely differently from how we evolved it. And people are always interested in abilities that humans have. And they've had a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, monkeys are like that, but not as good. And gorillas are like that, not as good. And dogs are like that, but not as good. But what the octopus tells us is that it's different. It has evolved this high intelligence and this sense of self separately. And some of the people who are interested in aliens say, well, wait a minute, octopuses are like an alien. And I don't like that. Octopuses are good at being octopuses. Humans are good at being humans. We're both adapted to a, the ecological niche that we evolved into, and that's fine. We're different, but they're not aliens. But on the other hand, you can see octopuses as another try at developing high intelligence. And the people who are interested in extraterrestrial intelligence say, well, you know, it's not just that we have one try and we ended up the best. We've got two tries and one of them is us and one of them is the cephalopods. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, yeah. But coming to intelligence itself, because we speak uh, generally speaking, evolution, whether intelligence in the brain or in the body, or maybe something beyond both of them. When we see that already in the movie, and also what we know that they also exhibit intelligence depending only on their body. If you can correct more about that, how they balance or dance the intelligence in their brain, because they have clearly, I think, three brains, and, and this has this kind of muscle they can sense surrounding. So how they balance this kind of the intelligence in the brain and their body on the arms they have? Well, Benny Hochner talked about embodied cognition, and I think in some sense it helps to think about our cognition as embodied in our ecology, in our body structure, and in our brain. So one way to put it would be to say the octopuses have these wonderfully flexible arms, and they can kind of take an arm and throw a loop around something they want to catch. I'm very jealous. I can't do that. The limitations mm -hmm. of my body mean that I can't do that. But they have these eight arms. And one of the things that we are very interested, two things about the arms. One is that because they're a muscular hydrostat, they have a huge load of neural coordination, which is necessary because I have to explain about this. We have a skeleton, right? the muscles articulate against the fixed bones. If you don't have fixed bones, you have to have some way to have stiffening or you'd fall in a little heap on the floor. So what they do is they allocate different muscles to be stiffeners and different muscles to be activators at the same time, but it's, but it's different from time to time. 
So to do that, you have to have a huge neural load. And not only have they got this in terms of fine motor coordination, they also have chemical and tactile sensing in the arms. So they've downloaded a lot of this task that we think of when we're doing it, that we're conscious of doing when we explore something with our hand. Probably the octopus is not conscious of the details of what the arms are doing. The brain would send out a general command and say, oh, go find out what's going on over there. And the arm would take over the details. But that's not the same thing as saying that the, arm, that the arms are conscious or that the arms have brains, which some people are suggesting, because it's really lower level subroutines, sometimes quite complicated. Because for instance, many octopus species autonomize or cast off an arm. Well, think of it this way. If the predator is trying to catch you, and you saw this in the film, actually, that a predator got a whole arm of the octopus. Well, the predator is going to be content with a nice juicy arm, and you get away with your life. So that's a fair trade-off. Um, and octopuses do this quite a bit, and they have the ability to regenerate the arms after they have lost them. So what that means is they have a more distributed control of behavior, way more than we do. We're very highly centralized and we take it for granted. So for instance, the insects have a chain of ganglia down the body. And so their control of behavior is somewhat distributed. Think about a centipede walking, okay? But we kind of take it for granted that if you're bright, you have very, very centralized control of behavior. And that's our model, but it's not the octopus's model. Okay. Mm. That's very fascinating. But in co it comes to the damage fall, for example, the scene, they losing their arm. I don't know how they can have the capabilities to regrow in a short amount of time and it still can restore the functionality. And the amount of this, when damage happening to them, how they adapt this kind of control to, to sensor environment. It's kind of redundancy they have, or I don't know how they manage if they use all these armors to maybe to sense the surrounding of their predators. So when they lose the arm, what actually happened to, to the control? Is this like distributed again to the arm? How they adapt again to this kind of losing one of the arm? Okay, well, we don't know enough about how they control the arms. So in many cases, we will only get fragmentary pieces of information. But some of the fragmentary pieces are very interesting. For instance, the arms are equipotential, which means that each arm, except for the male third right, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Each arm can do the same kind of thing that every other arm does. Okay. But even though they're equipotential, they tend, they don't tend to be equiactual. So if you've got four arms, the front four will be used for exploring and the back floor will be used for walking. On the other hand, if this is an octopus, if you feel like going in that direction, which the octopuses are perfectly capable of doing, then these arms would be used for walking and these arms would be used for exploring. But mostly they go forward. So mostly they allocate the back four 
arms for walking. And it's a simple grasp and push movement. Mostly they allocate the front four arms for exploring and figuring out what's going on. Mm. And Chrissy Hufford has some beautiful pictures of an octopus that's going across an open space, has to go across the open space and doesn't want to look like an octopus. So they walk on the back two legs and then they kind of bring all the other arms together and look like a ball of algae. So they use all the others for disguise and they use the back two for actually sort of tiptoeing across where they're in trouble. The other thing that's interesting from an engineering standpoint is there's one paper that looked at, is there what I would call gait analysis? Now this is which arms do you use to walk when you use them, okay? So for instance, for us, it's just left, right, left, right. But for, for a horse, it gets more interesting because you've got the walk and the trot and the gallop and they are different coordinations of walk, of the arm, of feet in walking, okay? And they did a lot of sophisticated analysis and they can't find any specific gait rules. They can't find any rules that say just exactly which arm you should doing when and which arm comes after which other arm. And it's hard to imagine we're so used to walking as an organized behavior. And especially when you get to many legs like the horse or many, many legs like the centipede. So it's hard to imagine that somehow or other they don't have any organized way of deciding which one, which one comes first and which one comes second and which one comes next. But, the, but they spent a lot of time doing the analysis, so I'm sure it's true. But then how do they organize to walk that we do not know? Now, another thing that's just been looked at very, very simply is whether there is some kind of chemical cue that the animal gives off that tells the animal that this is me because there isn't any visual cue and furthermore their appearance is very variable so you know what you look like in the mirror and i know what i look like in the mirror but when an octopus looks in the mirror it doesn't really think that's me okay i strongly suspect they've got chemical cues that do and we haven't figured it out yet actually it is very fascinating what you see, uh, what we said, and, and even because of the movie, the walking, and I was imagining how they can figure out to use two of their, like, the arm and then the flow. So, and that leads me to question how they managed to do this kind of shape changing. Because in the movie, we see that they can have like lock, lock of a rock, or maybe very soft, and of course, to, as a camouflage or maybe for the, to avoid the predators. But how they managed to do that, this kind of shape changing from very stiff, like stone, yeah. very soft. Well, they do have um, a commissure all linking all the arms at the base of the arms. And there's no doubt there's some information coming across it, but nobody has looked at it. And it's a real shame because that's a lot of what's going on in the coordination. By the way, something that they found that's fascinating Octopuses have laterally placed eyes, right? So most of their control is monocular. 
So they look at things predominantly with one eye or the other. And there's a series of very thorough but quite old research done in Naples, Italy in the 50s and 60s. And they were interested, they were interested in a lot of things. They were interested in how the octopus could understand shapes. And they, so they worked on visual shape perception. And then one of them got interested in this situation of, well, they're monocular. So if they see something with one eye, right? And you test them with the other eye, has the octopus managed to transfer the information to the other side of the body, the other side of the brain? And the answer is yes, but they also did what people are familiar with, with humans, which is the split brain, okay? So they split the two sides of the brain from one another, and then they trained the animal to look at a stimulus with one eye, a visual stimulus. And then they tested to see if the animal had stored the information on the other side of the brain. And the answer was no, it had not. They do store information bilaterally, but you can cut the brain so that one side and the other don't connect anymore and then they can't store it. So that was very interesting. It's very close parallel to split brain humans. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing they have is they have, and again, it depends on the species. Mm -hmm. uh, First, people began to look at octopuses and they discovered that they have a favorite side. So like we're either right-handed or left-handed. And it, but most of us are right-handed. So it looks as if the right side dominant is true for most of Homo sapiens, okay? But if you look at the eye preference, you find that most octopuses have a preference for one eye or the other, but it's pretty well equally divided. Okay. And this seems to us, it depends. One study found that this was true for several different tasks and another study found that it was not. Mm -hmm. you see, it's interesting because we used to say in humans that one side would be dominant for social situations and one side would be dominant for ecological situations. But that doesn't work for octopuses because they don't have social situations very much, okay? But the idea that has been advanced with birds is that one side is dominant for feeding and the other side is dominant for looking out for predators. Mm. And this seems to be more true in cuttlefish than in octopuses, probably because the octopuses are very chemotactile and the cuttlefish are pretty well visual for most of their functioning. It's the octopuses that have these extravagant arms that do all sorts of neat things. And the cuttlefish have arms, but they're not so important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, very fascinating, yeah. I have a couple, yeah, maybe the first thing about, again, the energy, because I think why I'm asking about the energy when I, they lose the arm. And um, yeah, I think it's very interesting when it comes to designing soft robots or robots, the energy density. So 
what happened actually can concentrate the, or return, resume their energy and grow their bars. What happened to the energy and how they can yeah, have this kind of contain this energy needed to survive? Because at the end of the movie, we see that after mating, I, I didn't quite understand that she is it's kind of like taking care of the eggs and then losing her life. If you can elaborate more about that, uh, it's, uh, it's like psychologically or what's the motivation to lose life for the eggs? Well, ecologically, it's quite simple. They are semiparous, which means that they reproduce once at the end of their life. Okay, and we're interoparous, which means we reproduce several times during our adult life. So we live in Canada, we live an average of 81 years, I think it is. And by and large, we're perfectly capable of reproducing from our teens to even now some people in their 60s, though people don't. Okay, so we can have child after child after child. And if you look at the, so somebody has suggested that, actually it was Packard, suggested that the reason that the octopuses have evolved the, the life history that they have is that they're in competition with the bony fishes who dominate the oceans, okay? Now the bony fishes live for long lives and they are also iteroparous. So the interesting thing to think about in terms of life history is here you have a fish that lives for 10, 12, maybe even up to 50 years, but it doesn't start to reproduce until several years into its life. Meanwhile, the octopus, which lives an average of 18 months, has run through several generations of its life history, grown up, had children, had offspring, died, They've grown up, had offspring, died by the time, say, the cod has even got to maturity. So it really is two contrasting life histories. Mm. And the life history of an octopus is very good in terms of living in changeable environments and colonizing new environments. Whereas the life history of the long-lived fish is very good for living in stable environments where you know it's going to be pretty well the same thing. And that's something that in life history and in behavioral scope and in brain capacity, the octopuses are set up for living in a changing environment. And this gets kind of obvious when you think about it because the coral reef is the most complex ecosystem on earth period, way ahead even of the rainforest, which is a quite complicated land environment. So if you live in a complex and changing environment, then it's really, really adaptive to be smart. It's not the only way to be adaptive. So for instance, the horseshoe crab, which lives in the same kind of changeable environments, has a design that is millennia, millennia old. So you can go back into the fossils and you can see horseshoe crabs that look like horseshoe crabs always looked like. It's a different strategy, but what the octopus has chosen as a strategy is live fast, die young, be flexible. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's my deploy. 
Yeah, but I'm curious to ask you through the evolution because it seemed that the lose the hard shell that what uh, what uh, what understood from the movie and also in evolution they lose the hard shell and when they try to protect themselves, is there something before that they have longer lifespan with hard shell? Do you think this kind of because it's trade off and they try to because they have this kind of very soft body and they try to protect them themselves? It's crazy, but I don't know how this kind of transition going from this having the hard shell to lose the hard shell and how they can a creature develop this kind of intelligence to adapt and protect yourself how is this happening um, across the evolution well one of the things it happens slowly mm. so you know when we say they abandoned the shell it sounds like they picked up the shell and dropped it off and went on their way and and that kind of thing happens over millennia it's like mm every individual animal is a small experiment if it reproduces the experiments is success if it doesn't reproduce the experiments a failure it's a funny way to look at it but it works okay mm -hmm. and by the way if you look back in history of the marine environment what you find is that before the coleoid cephalopod, which is the ones we're talking about. The, in fact, the seas were dominated by other cephalopods. They were ammonites, belemnites, and nautiloids. And they have external shells and they flourish. They were predators and prey. They dominated the ecosystem. The fossils are available all over in rocks. But we don't know precisely what happened but they pretty well died off. The ammonoids died off. The belemnoids gave rise to this offshoot, which is the coleoids that lost the shell. And there's a few nautiloids left in the deep ocean, the nautilus. And they have this wonderful chambered shell and they live in the shell chambers. And they're, we're beginning to learn um, Jenny Basil did quite a bit of work on them and they're smarter than we thought they were, but they're scavengers mostly. They're very, very tied into chemical cues and they live long lives. So they have a completely different life history than the coleoid cephalopods, which is the, the naked guys. Mm. So it's yeah. really interesting to think about. Yeah. But there's, there's an interesting question that some people have asked me, given that octopuses aren't social and that they really are very wary, why did this animal get curious about Craig? It, it, and yeah. why did this animal learn to trust him? Yes. And, and I think there's two answers to that. One is that octopuses have very, very de definite and quite different personalities. And one of the dimensions that they vary in personalities on is the shy, bold dimension, which of course we have too. So when Roland Anderson and I were testing for personalities in the octopuses of the Seattle Aquarium, we found the, the one test that gave us the most information about what kind of animal it was, was mm. when we touched them on the side of the mantle with a bristly test tube brush. And their reactions varied all the way from 
puffing out a jet of ink and jetting away to get as far as possible from it. And one of the animals who reached out and tried to pull the brush out of Roland's hands. Mm. Okay. So an animal like that with a personality that would engage with anything that was going on that would explore as much as possible would be an animal that would slowly come to trust Craig. And I think that's probably what happened, that he encountered an animal with a very outgoing personality and that the animal gradually came to accept him as not mm. dangerous. It's fascinating to think about because in a way, the octopus must have been as fascinated about him as we are about octopuses. Yeah. That's very interesting. Actually, in the movie, asking what kind of this kind of relationship this wild octopus will expect from Craig in the movie, and that, and even himself is asking, is this octopus is dreaming? What is dreaming? What he, what she is dreaming about? Uh, what kind of emotion they have? Because it's just yeah, it's it's crazy how first of all, does he dream? Uh, octopus can dream, and what kind of emotion they have? Okay. That's almost the last bastion of what we're going to discover about them. And philosophers have called it the hard question. What are other animals thinking? It's the hard question because we just don't know and we don't have any way of proving it. I mean, I don't even know what you're thinking. Well, we can ask other homo sapiens, but on the other hand, they don't have to tell the truth. Yeah. So in some ways, the only individual who's thinking we really, really understand is ourselves. And sometimes we don't even do that. I'm quite sure of that. Okay. Mm. I don't know what emotions the octopuses have I'm pretty sure they have them. I'm also pretty sure I'll never be able to prove it. But they don't have these kind of social bonding emotions that we have. They don't have love. They probably don't even have like. Mm. On the other hand, if they're damaged, they have pain. And Robin Crook is looking at the stimuli and the circumstances and the reactions of pain. And it's a really bad problem because if we look at it in humans, pain is sensory, that's obvious. It's cognitive in the sense that if you burn, a, burn yourself on something, you don't touch it again. And it's affective in the sense that we say, it hurts and I have feelings. Now. To prove all that of the octopus is extremely difficult. It's relatively easy to, to figure out that the octopuses do indeed make cognitive decisions about what to do so they won't hurt again. But I don't know if we're ever, ever going to the point of being able to say that we know what they feel. Mm. But there are things that they clearly avoid and react negatively to. And there are things that they react positively to, food. Um, and one of the interesting things, and this, this kind of comes from what I would call lab lore from research, research scientists. 
different animals have different food rewards or other rewards, but mostly food rewards that you'll do anything for. So it turns out the gerbils will do anything for sunflower seeds. What was it? Monkeys, I think, are very, very fond of grapes. There was something else too. But somebody was doing a study with, with monkeys, wanted to see how they were monitoring conspecifics. So they had two of them side by side and they were giving, I have to remember what the report was. They were giving them a, you know, if they did a test, right? They were giving them a piece of food and I don't remember what the food was, but it was the food that they thought was okay, but they didn't particularly like it. And then they stopped giving this food to one of a pair of monkeys that could see each other getting the rewards. And they started giving the quote unquote favored monkey grapes, which the other monkey likes and gave the other monkey a piece of, you know, some kind mm. of cow. And after a few trials with the one being rewarded in with absolutely highly desirable grapes and the other being rewarded with nothing, number two, when it got a rewarded, threw its reward back at the person who was doing it. It just beamed him with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, nah, 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 I don't like that stuff. Octopuses are very, very difficult to reward to to have a crab used as a negative stimulus. You'd be tempted to say they like crabs. Yeah. And, and Kurt Unfink did a study where he looked at crabs versus clams. Because we often say, well, gee, lower animals only look at the energetic reward of food. Okay. But they preferred the crabs over the clams, no matter how often he gave them, no matter how many, you know. And he did a test to see what, what the energetic reward was of eating clams. And you got more energy out of eating clams than you did out of eating a crab, okay? And then he looked at how long it took them to consume the food and you got to eat the clam and get the food much faster than you got to eat the crab. So the energetic rewards in terms of the amount of energy you got, in terms of the amount of energy you expended to actually get the food and consume it, was much higher for the clam than the crab. But the octopus didn't care, it had the crab anyway. Wow. Well, I was explaining this to somebody and, and I said, well, you know, maybe they like it better. I like it better. How about you? Do you like clam better than crab? Yeah. So maybe it tastes better. We don't know. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that it would be really interesting to find out. What is it that the octopus likes? And I think that's really hard to find out because it doesn't like conspecifics. It doesn't like social situations. And we're so used to thinking of that, you know, fish will go through a gradient to get to the company of other fish, though it depends on the fish species. And I think most mammals, if they're offered the opportunity to be with another of their same kind, they will make that choice. But the octopus won't make that choice. So it makes it much harder for us to figure out what's motivating it when it isn't motivated by the things that motivate us. Yeah, that's good. Very interesting. 
But I'm curious to ask you, Jennifer, um, is there something maybe was still counterintuitive to you, maybe in the movie or beyond the movie about the octopus behavior? You, you still maybe, you didn't expect that counterintuitive to what you try to understand. I don't know if there's something you notice in the movie or something beyond an octopus behavior in general, counterintuitive or surprising. Well, this is only just in the movie. No, it's not just in the movie. It was in the BBC thing when, when the octopus reached out to all these shells and put it around itself in order to protect it from the fish. I don't know how they knew how to do that. No. The other thing that I believe was in the movie, I'm pretty sure it was, was when the shark was attacking the octopus and the octopus came up and went on the top of the shark. Yeah, yeah, and that's was, what was safe there. Not only that, and as I said, I'm not quite sure whether this was in the movie or not, but it moved its arms down into its gills. And the animal had to let go because it couldn't breathe properly. Now, these are very spectacular examples of intelligence, very spectacular. And if you think about it, to some extent, you learn to do things because you have found the circumstances before and now you know you need to avoid them. But I don't know how an octopus could decide that it could get on top of a shark and clog its gills with its arms because I, I can't see that as being trial and error. You either do it right the first time or it's too bad. So what the film showed me is and, and actually what it showed me is something I already know, okay? That if you want to figure out the extent of an animal's behavior, the extent of its cognition, the extent of its adaptation, you should be watching it where it lives. This, this is something that I have felt for a long, long, long time. And I actually really started my in-depth work, I guess, watching animals in the shallow water in Bermuda. And several articles that I published from that really, they kind of set what I understood from watching the animal where it lived. I have very good taste, by the way, in field sites. So I've been in Bermuda, Hawaii, mm -hmm. in Bonaire, in the Caribbean. Wonderful. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it is true. The only way we're going to find out what the animal actually can do well, it's a little bit unfair. Here is what we're going to do to find out what the animal can do. We watch it where it lives, we see what it does, and then we design lab studies to tease apart just exactly what's going on. But I really think we have to start with looking at what it can do, where it is doing it. And Craig did teach us some things about this. Yeah. Besides giving us a wonderful film. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very wonderful, but I don't know what could also, for example, other, maybe something you still think we need that uh, research, because I think so for robotics, we still can, can, yeah, use octopus as inspiration. What could other element you think inspiration as well in octopus from your experiences? We can engineer them. There was a big push about 10 years ago, maybe, when people began to look at the control of octopus arms 
and make what they're called soft robots. Because clearly, and they've got past this, but people, when they began thinking of making robots that would move across the landscape, would put them on legs like ours, and they would teeter over and fall, and they'd have to figure out about balance. And, and there's no doubt if you watch an octopus moving across the landscape that it is very, very well adapted to moving across irregularities, moving in whichever direction it wants to, sensing at the same time that it moves. So it, it's a very attractive model for how to move in a much more adapted way. Mm. But the people who started moving with octopus arms, they started making models of octopus arms. And one of the reasons that I got discouraged is that it seemed that they just looked at the arm movement itself. Now, an octopus arm is actually a vehicle to carry suckers someplace. Okay, it's arm, arms don't move with with a couple of sex of exceptions, which I should mention, arms don't move or take positions because they want to have the arm moving and the arm being in a particular place. They move to particular places so that the suckers can attach so the suckers can do something. Mm. Okay, yeah. so if the arms are a vehicle for carrying suckers someplace to do something and you decide you're just going to look at arm movement, then you've lost the purpose of the arm movement. Got it. And by the way, the exception is, um, particularly in squid, also in cuttlefish, not quite so much in octopuses, that they will use the arms to make postures that end up being concealing. So they'll make the arms to loop around in a whole sort of tangle that look like algae. And there they are using the arm postures and movements for their own sake. But mostly arms are for tearing suckers someplace to do something. And we don't know enough about just exactly how the suckers are coordinated. Though Frank Grasso has some work on that. Very interesting, yeah. So, so I would say that we should make the models not just for our movement, but also for our use, which is different. Of course, the suckers are a completely different model, okay? So each arm is a chain of ganglia and each ganglion controls a sucker ganglion, mm -hmm. okay? Now, the sucker has a mechanism whereby it can attach, okay? So it can come down like this, hold on. But the sucker is also sensing, it's got tens of thousands of tactile and chemical receptors. So it's exploring the environment and picking up information as well as attaching onto it. But the other thing that it can do, and this is one of my favorite stories about suckers, is that it can take the suction cup and it can fold it sideways. And it can make a pincher grasp. Now, we are very fond of saying that we have this pincher grasp and that makes us dominant in the mammals, right? But we've only got two of them. The octopus has hundreds. Mm. And one thing that I'd assume I'm on suckers, I'll keep talking about this. 
when I was a graduate student, my major professor did some surgery on a couple of octopuses, removed the optic gland. And he anesthetized the animals, did the surgery, tied the wound up with surgical silk, which is very, very fine. Saw that the animals came out of the anesthetic and were fine and went home for the night. And he came back the next morning and the untied surgical silk pieces were down at the bottom of the aquarium and the octopus was at the side of the aquarium. So it had untied knots in surgical silk, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing, and, and this is an example of the kinds of things we don't know, okay. Um, someone got hold of an endoscope when a female was laying her eggs and attaching them to the top of the shelter. And you have this kind of long string and then an egg at the bottom, okay? And we knew that up to maybe 10 or 15, I would say eggs, would be woven together and then let, and the eggs would be a cluster at the bottom and then they'd make another cluster move. Well, it turns out that the are that the suckers right next to the mouth were being used like bobbins so that the suckers were weaving around and back and forth so that the egg stalks would be woven together. So there's a whole lot of things we don't know about them. Wow, yeah. Uh, maybe I'm curious to ask this question because I think in the movie when we see that, that the shark is trying to pull the arm and many people asking why Crick didn't intervene to avoid that happening. Or absolutely if the octopus don't have to mate and will be left longer in that case, if there is no predator and also they don't have to mate, what could happen to the life cycle of the octopus? Well, this has only been done a couple of times and not very extensively, but there's a gland that's called the optic gland, which has been described as a parallel to our pituitary, and it's not really. But if you remove the optic gland, the octopus does not it doesn't come into sexual maturity and it lives very, very much longer life. Okay. Mm. So we know what you would think about, because of course this is how it works. There's a physiological mechanism to controlling the length of the lifespan because you, you go along happily as a juvenile in sort of eat and gain weight mode. And then there's a switch that changes and turns on the reproductive behavior and turns on the physiological changes that produce eggs and sperm. And eventually what that results in is mating behavior. And at the end of lifespan, both the males, that, so you shouldn't think about the end of the lifespan as being an accident. It's not as programmed, okay? Mm. So eventually when the male has been mating as much, has been mating and, and like the octopus that Craig followed, she knows when it's time and she goes deep into some kind of hole or burrow. And it's often very difficult to find octopuses when they do this because they really try to get out of sight and they pull rocks on themselves, okay? So that they don't have any communication with the external world. She pretty well stops eating and she tends the eggs 
and she dies at the end of brooding the eggs. Now, if you were following a male and a female from the same group of eggs, you would find that about that same time, the male slowed down and stopped his eating. He also became much more active and lost its daily activity cycle. And what would happen in the wild is that some predator would come along and go, hmm, thanks for dinner. But what happens in the lab if you keep them is that they stop eating. And, and actually the giant Pacific octopus, which is the octopus that people have in aquaria most of the time. Mm. The, if you want to put it, the octopus keepers are quite happy to have senescent male octopuses because Dauphine, which is a species, is actually quite nocturnal. But they lose their nocturnal activity and they come out in the daytime and they lose their instinct, I guess you'd call it, to hide and they wander back and forth across the, the aquarium. So they make very good display animals because they're there out in the daytime and they're moving back and forth and people come and go, ooh, ooh. Mm -hmm. you know? So. Really People take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We will go for. We have few audience questions, but the first question uh, from Paige asking: We have tested octopus intelligence against our human metrics bug. Has any attempt been made to understand octopus intelligence and test against its own metric? We cover both of them, but if we can, yeah, uh, answer this question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and the answer is. We have attempted to understand the octopus through our metric. And to some extent, I can understand that because it's the only metric we've got. Mm. But it's not necessarily a good idea. And one of the ways in which our metric is used falsely is that, and it's all over the literature, that octopuses are predominantly visual. And the answer is they are not particularly predominantly visual. So um, Maselli did a study quite recently and what she did is she had different bins in which there was food. And in some cases you could see, the octopus could see it. And in some cases there were chemical cues coming out, okay? Mm -hmm. Now when, when they had both visual and chemical cues, they were faster at getting the food. But if you set up a situation where the visual cue was given in one bin and the chemical cue was given in, a, in another bin, when that happens to us, we would go, go for the vision. When it happens to an octopus, it says go for the chemical cues. So we're overestimating the octopus as a visual animal and underestimating the octopus as an animal that's interested in chemical and tactile cues. But the answer to an awful lot of that is no, we don't necessarily know how to investigate the animal in paradigms that we don't understand. So if you look at episodic like memory, Yes, and if we look at what they, what they, I wish they wouldn't do this, they call the marshmallow test. This was a test that was given to small children. Could they delay 
taking a reward if there was a bigger reward coming later. And it turns out the octopus could do that. So this is clearly our paradigm. Mm. But the octopus could perform fine at it. And with episodic like memory, the animal can learn what cue at which location and at what time will give you the reward. It's a combination of those three things. And the octopus can do that as well. And some people have looked at reversal learning. So if you award A and don't reward B, then when the animal gets good at A, can you switch so that they don't get rewarded for A and they do get rewarded for B and the answer, the answer is yes, they can do that. So these are all, you're quite right. They're all our tests. Yeah. We don't necessarily know how to give, we don't know how to give tests that aren't our tests. What we do know how to do is to better understand the animal sensory ecology and to understand cues and situations that are better for them. But we really aren't very good at that because we tend to think of how to test what we know. I'm really enjoying what you say and I think there's a lot to learn. And he also asked us, also, can you explain more about how the brain system work? I don't know if you can elaborate more point about the brain system and the octopus, how it work. Okay, well, I actually have a chapter in cephalopod cognition published in 2016 or 2014, because we take it for granted that the octopus is visual in terms of finding prey. And over and over again, I have pointed out to people that crabs do not fall out of the sky. This is just not the way it works, except in labs. But what the octopus does is it's got a two-stage prey finding process. Stage number one is visual. So the octopus will come out of shelter and look around and think about where would be a good place to find prey and remember where it had found preferred prey before and it'll go hunting in those particular places. But when it goes hunting, it's not hunting by vision. In those particular places, what it's using is what I call chemotactile search. So it'll stick its arms into crevices. It or the arms will go underneath rocks. It will sneak the arms up algae so that it's using touch and chemical senses to actually find the prey. But it's going, it's using vision to go to likely locations where the prey would possibly be. And anybody who's even been snorkeling in the tropics would understand that this is really, and even in the temperate areas would really understand this is true. Because an animal out there in the open is vulnerable, okay? You won't be sitting out in the open unless you have spines like sea urchins or unless you can grab on to the rock like crazy, like limpets, because some fish will come and eat you. So, and I learned this when I was a kid, when I turned over rocks in the intertidal to see what was underneath. Anything with any brains is underneath. So the octopus has to go underneath to find them. And that's where the arms come in and where the arms are so effective. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that the octopus will do, I'll see if I can illustrate this. 
you got a rock here, right? The artist will come on, bring the arms down, bring the flexible web down between the arms and make a kind of a parachute around it. I call it web over. And then it'll feel underneath to see what it's trapped. Fascinating. Yeah, it's very, very fascinating. There's also a question from uh, Boris. He asks us, what is your advice for someone hoping to study marine biology or yeah, at university? And he loved your work also. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a colleague who wasn't particularly interested in insects, but he made friends with a beekeeper who was interested in science. And he spent a lot of time hanging around the bees and understanding about the bees. And by the time he went to university, he had a good, good kind of knowledge base about how some animal worked, okay? Mm. I was fascinated with the intertidal. I used to turn over rocks to see what was underneath them. I used to drop rocks into sea anemones to see what they would do with, with um, a non-living prey as distinct from what they were usually getting. As a kid exploring the natural world and just letting your curiosity run, finding somebody would help you. That is the best background for marine biology or for that matter, any kind of scientific investigation. If as a kid, you've been out fooling around, trying to figure out what's out there, trying to figure out how it works. As an undergraduate, if I wanted to go into marine biology, I would look up the specific places where they have undergraduate programs. So for instance, if you said to me, I'm a Canadian and I want to do marine biology, where do I go do undergraduate? I would say, go to UVic or go to Dalhousie because they have specific programs. The other thing you could do as an undergraduate, and unfortunately these things cost money, is that they have summer institutes, summer research institutes, many, many different places around the globe. And that would give you the opportunity to find out how things work. Mm -hmm. But I guess I would say cultivate your curiosity. I would think that that would be the best thing you would do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So since it goes and uh, I have three questions for you, Jennifer. The first one, what's something you have learned through your career from understanding octopus? And, and in the movie also, when we see Craig's story, it was very emotional that animal can teach us something. We are human sometimes, it's a struggle to to know or, to, and I think that's very fascinating message, but for you, what you learn about from studying and being, uh, having in-depth research about understanding octopus and for also from the movie, what kind of something you change it in you or maybe you have gained? Well, I think I gradually acquired what Craig acquired fairly quickly, which is a respect for other animals. And that has actually led to some extent in a different direction for me because I am concerned about welfare of invertebrate animals. Now, invertebrates make up 99% of the animals on the planet, okay? We're not talking about a few little stray animals here. We're talking about the animals that dominate the planet. And to some extent, it's better now and it's better in some places. 
But in the United States, for instance, you can still do anything to any invertebrate animal that you want to do to dissect it out tissue. And when you think about what the octopus is like and you think about what that means in terms of the cruelty you can inflict on it, that's wrong. So it's changed a lot over time. I'm, I'm the co-editor of a book in the Springer series published in 2019 called Welfare of Invertebrates. And we collected people who worked with animals from completely different phyla and we got them to talk about what we could do about their welfare. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a start. But I remember my co-editor got in touch with me because the Springer people indicated to them that they were interested and they've got a whole series. So they have a series on welfare of dogs and they've got one on welfare of pigs, one on welfare of sheep, very specific species. And he said, so what do you think? Would you do this? I said, oh, the other 99% of the animals on the planet. Okay. So we have a lot to learn in terms of consideration about other animals. And it's not just, even though you might think, well, this is because the octopuses are smart that we ought to care about them. But we ought to care about any animal, regardless of whether it's smart or not. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you 100% about that, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I teach a course called Human-Animal Interactions, by the way. <clears throat> and, and every spring I get the students to talk about their philosophy about animals. And they say, well, you know, I care about animals. I care about their welfare. And then we start talking about the specific species and the specific kinds of interactions. And I say, hmm, parasites are animals. And they go, oops. So I, there's, there's obviously some line in the sand in terms of care and consideration. Um, I'm afraid when something walks on me, I lose its care and consideration. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Finally, I don't know if you have received any advice and was a life changing or maybe advice you noticed through your career and was a life changing because I think that's why the movie how we can have a life-changing experiences. It wasn't really life-changing, but it turns out it was science-changing. When I went to Bermuda, nobody knew what the animals were doing in the wild. They just knew what they did in the lab if you gave them particular learning tests. And I remember watching because we took turns relaying. I had volunteers from an organization called Earthwatch, and I could not have done this without them because we watched specific individuals for 12 hours a day. And you cannot do that by yourself or even with a few people, you need a lot of people. But I was watching this animal that was doing nothing much. It had been hunting, mm -hmm. it came back and it had gone into the shelter and it was kind of cleaning out the shelter of sand and rubble. And it stopped and looked out over the area because it was up here a little bit and you know down there. It stopped, it went out, it picked up a rock, put it in front of it. It went out, it picked up another rock, put it in front of it. Mm -hmm. Went out, it picked up a third rock, put it in front of it. And then it picked up all these rocks, held it with a sucker, put it in front of it, pulled back and went to sleep. 
And it sounds pretty primitive, but I thought, well, that animal knew what it was doing. It wasn't reacting to things in the environment. It had a plan for what it wanted and it carried out the plan. And, and I think that shaped how I thought of the animals after that, mm. because I knew that the animal was thinking. I didn't know necessarily what it was thinking or how it was thinking. Mm -hmm. but it was obvious to me that it was thinking. So I think that shaped my approach to the animals. Fascinating, yeah. I, I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say uh, to people maybe listening, if you have any final words you'd like to say. One thing I'm very proud of that my octopus teacher did is that it taught us that we have to look at, consider and understand all the animals. And I'm very grateful that Craig managed to pass that message on to everybody, and I hope everybody carries it through. Okay. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Again, uh, it was really an honor and very interesting and fascinating to me. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you.